Did you hear? Three words that I think can just rock your world. Did you hear? And you can always tell by the person's face that's telling you that, the, that bad news is about to come. And so you better brace yourself because it's going to rock your world and in a period of milliseconds, a flood of questions overcome your mind. Did you hear? Why? Where's my wife? Where's my husband? How are my kids doing? Where are my friends? What's happened this time? Who's in danger? Well, this past Monday, I walked into an office with three people covering their mouths in horror while looking at their computer screen. Then one of them turned around and said those three words. Did you hear? Well, the whole nation, they heard and we felt the repercussions of two bombs as they ushered the terror and the destruction of the Boston Marathon right into our lives at our work, at our home, and at our schools. And we all sat there and wondered, what's next? I'm sure many of you experienced a phoning frenzy, I know I did, around me, where people were calling their family and their friends and their neighbors who had either went to go run the marathon, the highly prized Boston Marathon, or even family and friends that you know who live there or who were attending to watch. You see, it's in moments like these where we just look around at our world and we say, this isn't the way it's supposed to be. This is messed up, isn't it? And it's been this way almost as long as we can remember. I mean, we're told in Scripture of one day, though, when peace reigned supreme and terror was merely a mystery, a period at the beginning of our world where God, humanity, and the rest of creation flourished together rather than fought against one another. But something happened that changed the landscape of our home. It fell apart. And it, this wasn't an accident, nor was this by design. Brokenness exploded into, it exploded around and surrounded the scene early in our story, mixing every joy with pain. And it was detonated by the first man and woman, Adam and Eve, when they chose to rebel against our God, the King of the universe. Today, we still, we still carry that shrapnel in our hearts, and we still see the wreckage throughout our world from this original explosion all the way back then. In our hearts, we ache and we long for the day for when God in Christ will make all things right once again. But until that day, we all want to know, what can we do now? What can we do now, whether it's the bombs in Boston, the shootings in Newton, it's the explosions at Waco, the explosion down at JJ's, it's the genocide in Rwanda that still has lasting effects, the, the murders of the unborn, the, the lack of care for the born, the, the poverty that stretches across our city, the abuse of the migrant worker, the prominence of sex trafficking, the fragmentation of today's families, people dying without Jesus, our friends suffering with cancer, or even the overbearing weight of our own sinful hearts. What can we do now? Brokenness, it compels us to move. And most of the time we can keep our composure, can't we? But there are certain moments in our lives where it just shakes us. And the weight of the pain is too heavy for us to stand still. We feel the push to move and to step out and to do something, to make a difference. We can't just wait until Christ returns, nor are we called to 
This is the key thing throughout Scripture. But as God's people, we join in on God's work of restoration here and now. You see, our generation, they're not alone in feeling this way. It's kind of arrogant if we think that. (laughs) Um, But throughout the story of Scripture, we see people time and time again compelled by brokenness. Around 2,500 years ago, there were these people who not only saw brokenness, but they just felt crushed. Their city was Jerusalem. And it laid in ruins with no wall, no temple, and they were vulnerable to every whims of oppression and every kind of evil. God had once glorified his great name in this city. He'd made it beautiful. He had protected her. But when they had abandoned God, God gave them over to the desires of their heart and let them be. And there came a point when they sat in the rubble and they looked around at the work of their own making and said, where is God? Will he ever return to us? As broken people with broken spirits, they looked about broken walls. But you see, God, he hears their shouts here and he orchestrates one man, Nehemiah, which Josh excellently read for us this morning, to lead in the slow steps of restoration. The brokenness that encounters his ears, he's compelled to respond in four ways. We'll see. We're also going to bleed over to chapter 2. He responds by weeping, praying, working, and trusting. And here, God's word, it gives us timely and timeless avenues on how to respond to brokenness in our own lives still today. So go ahead and turn in your Bibles um, to the book named after this leader, Nehemiah. If you're using the Community Bibles, it starts on page 255 there that we have for free at the back table. At the end of the week, we're actually going to begin reading this story together. We've been sprinting throughout the story of Scripture, this storyline that covers multiple characters and moves across a wide swath of Scripture But now we're going to slow down. We're going to sit in the story of Nehemiah for a little while. So if one of two things, if you've kind of gotten out of the discipline of reading through open here, it happens. Give yourself grace. It's okay. This is a great opportunity to jump back in as we walk through this story together. It's very accessible. Also, if you've been asking the question whether you want to start reading open here uh, and join us as a community in reading through scripture together this year, this is a great place to do that as well. And if you don't have a Bible or a reading uh, schedule. We got those for free on the back table. Take it. It's yours. It's free. It's just, this is how important we think it is to be in God's Word. We want you to have that as a gift from us. Well, over these past few months, we've been journeying with the Israelites since their very beginning. Um, we saw them become a nation. They built this magnificent temple. But Israel, just like Adam and Eve, They rebelled against God, and they watched everything over generations explode. Last week, we witnessed their exile and their enslavement, and we're going to use this chart to help us see that, with the Babylonians destroying the temple in Jerusalem in 586 B.C. This is historical. These aren't just stories that are made up. We've got historical proof. You go to major archaeological and historical museums in Chicago, and you see the artifacts from many of these activities Then you go uh, 40 years later, 50 years later, and you see a few, after the destruction and the exile of the Jews, few actually return to Jerusalem. 
Because God, he never gives up on his people. Never. And we see this, and they rebuild the temple in 516 under the reign of a guy named Zerubbabel. That's a fun name. I mean, that would be hard to say very fast. And then a man of God is sent named Ezra, and he comes to Jerusalem and begins the religious and spiritual renewal. And then in 445, we meet this guy named Nehemiah. Nehemiah, he's living in exile still underneath the Persian Empire. Now, we're going to get just a smidge of history, but I promise it'll be quick. I love history, but I know not everybody does. So we see here the green is actually what the Persian Empire controlled. So you can tell they had a big influence on where our world was going and the, the known world at the time. And what you find is that Nehemiah, well, here's Jerusalem, way down here in, this, uh, in Palestine area. And then you have Susa, which is way over there. And that's where Nehemiah is. He's in kind of the winter home of Artaxerxes, King Artaxerxes at the time, who's reigning over this, this great empire of Persia. Uh, Nehemiah, he's a single guy. He's a eunuch. Um, so his whole life revolves around his vocation. He's valiantly seeking to serve his king well, but everything is about to change, as we read this morning. In December of 445 BC, a few Israelites, one being his brother, who had recently visited Jerusalem, came to Nehemiah and he said this, looking in verse 3. The remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. Did you hear? Jerusalem is a garbage dump. And it's at this moment that Nehemiah's life will never be the same. This brokenness, this news of destruction just shapes where his life is heading. And if we've been paying attention to the story of Israel, we know that the ultimate problem with Israel is a spiritual one. They love to reject God. That's why they're in this mess. Not because of superpowers changing hands. It's not just merely sociological, but God is sovereign. And, and we have a hunch that God is about to do something spectacular through Nehemiah, as we've read. And some of us, we might even expect God to swoop down and start to save souls. I mean, this is the problem, right? The spiritual renewal. But he doesn't. Instead, he sends this guy, Nehemiah, to rebuild walls. You see, in those days, a city without walls, it wasn't a city at all. It was a target. It was a place of destruction, a place where the whims of evil could easily overtake the people because they had no defense. And God, he will restore them spiritually, but simultaneously, he's taking care of their walls, their physical protection. You see, when God rescues, he rescues people holistically. He's not just going to look at you as a soul because we are not souls. That's not how we define who we are. We are defined as human beings that have bodies, that have minds, that have emotions, that have a soul. Yes, all of these pieces. And it's because God cares about all of these things that we too care about all aspects of our human beings that surround us. Now look at how Nehemiah responds to this news that he receives. Brokenness compels him to brush it off. And just forget about it. No, right? Of course not. Brokenness compels him to weep, to cry out before anything else. Verse 4 says, As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. Why don't we weep, folks? 
Now, I'm, I'm not saying we're all criers. We don't all, you know, all they need to be shedding tons of tears. I don't mean that. But why don't we feel more deeply about the issues that surround us in every day? Why do we rush to such superficial solutions, quick fixes to very complicated problems? Or when people come to us in pain, we, we many times give pat answers with no more depth than a greeting card. We need to weep with people. God commands, even in Romans 12, later on in the biblical story, he says, weep with those who weep. This language of compassion. Come means with, passion, suffering, suffering with, alongside of entering in, so your, your tears are genuine because you feel what they feel. Now, I heard someone say once that one of the biggest problems for the American church is that we don't have a very good theology of suffering. We've been so insulated, we're so comfortable, and, I, and trust me, I'm not bagging on the fact that we have an opportunity to live out our faith and freedom. But we're surprised anymore when we come across pain, difficult situations. Don't let pain surprise you, folks. It's a part of our world that is broken and surrounds us in brokenness and is broken even within us still. But be prepared to weep with those who weep and weep yourself. Now, if I'm honest, I'm not really as prepared as I'd like to be uh, to weep. Um, I see the abuse of the migrant worker around me, but I have a good job. You know, I love serving with you guys and alongside of you. Homeless men and women live in our streets, but I've got a good home. Um, and I don't weep nearly as much. I do not enter into their pain. Religious oppression is across the globe. I mean, we have brothers and sisters, uh, Marzia, Hossein, and Ilya, who came here, who are oppressed for their faith in Jesus. We know others who are stabbed and very much persecuted for their faith in Jesus Christ, who come here for refuge, to be able to live out their faith and freedom. And yet we're so glib with our own freedoms. And I, I know I can be the worst at this, actually. I mean, it's, it's a silly example, but I'm still learning how to do this. Um, when Allie comes to me with a problem... I tend to just want to fix it, right? I just, so she, she wants me to listen. She wants me to enter into it and feel the dramatic nature of the situation. But I just want to, I want to fix it. And so I get harsh. I get straight to the facts. And I can become more harmful than helpful. And guys, I mean, I'm sure many of us can feel that as we, we want to get down to the tools and the nitty-gritty. How can we start tightening up the bolts to make this mechanism of a problem start running smoothly? And if it can't be fixed, we just move on. Buck up. Let's go. Let's get it moving. Um, but really, step one, as we learn from Nehemiah and learn from Scripture, is to weep. It's to weep. Without weeping, any attempt to fix any problem is really superficial at best and self-centered at worst. Now, I know we're not all going to weep over everything. We just can't do that or we would be crying all the time. Um, but what has God put in your heart specifically? That's what Nehemiah says. If you jump to chapter 2, verse 12, he says God put this in his heart. It's something that was laid on him. The walls had been broken for about 140 years when Nehemiah hears this news. This wasn't like it just happened. But they had been broken apart for 140 years, and at the right time, God had to be the one to put this on his heart. If you're not weeping over anything, if nothing moves your soul, ask God to put something on your heart, to break your heart if needed. And 
since we have a World Vision friend here with us, I, I think of Bob Pierce, the founder of World Vision. He's a, it's, it's a dynamic Christian relief agency. And he's known for regularly praying, God, break my heart with the things that break your heart. Break my heart with the things that break your heart. So we ask ourselves, what's a burden in your family? An issue at school or with a friend or maybe even, let's, let's, we have to include this, something globally. It may be more complicated. It might have more steps to get involved. But what issues are God, is God laying on your heart? I mean, there's no shortage of options. We're some, surrounded by brokenness. But right now, I want you to think of one thing. Just one thing. And everyone, I mean, that includes the kiddos here too. Thinking of one thing. And I want you to write it down. One terrible thing, if you're taking notes, that grabs your heart. Because if we, if we try to think super complex about this issue, we come across so many issues and we never end up doing anything. What's one thing that you will weep about? One thing that you're asking God to break your heart over? But weeping, it isn't the end. It can't be. Or we're just going to become, like we said, these emotional train wrecks. Weeping has to turn to prayer. And brokenness, it compels us to pray. And in his sorrow, Nehemiah does exactly the same thing. We actually have one of his prayers here beginning in verse 5. He says, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. How does his prayer begin? He knows who he's praying to. He begins by highlighting the truth about who God is and affirming his greatness. He's the great and awesome God, the Lord of God over heaven. This Lord in all caps is very specific. It's not a generic title. It's Yahweh. It's the personal name he gave to the Israelites in the time of the Exodus. And then he affirms God's promises to his people. He knows scripture. He knows the history of how God has involved himself with his people saying the steadfast love of those who keep or who love him and keep his commandments. And then he holds on to God's character by highlighting this loyal love. He holds fast. He knows who God is. He knows what he's done in the past by knowing the promises of history through scripture, through the traditions. And he holds fast to the character of God, a loyal, loving God. And then what's his next step? Once he has a full orbed picture of who God is, he confesses. Because who am I in the light of this God that is so magnificent, so awesome and great, are his words. In verse 6, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you, even I and my father's house have sinned. Look at his confession, his language of confession. We, so many times we just say, Father, forgive me. And we, get, and, and, and it, we have to understand that our walk with God is always personal, but never individualistic. Do you know what I'm saying by that? It's always personal. It is one-on-one, -on -one, but it always involves a community as we seek to follow Jesus Christ and honor our great God. And we see here in his confession that it is both individual and collective. We forget that we're culpable even for the sins of others. And this is a pretty magnificent and humbling statement because without even knowing it, we can be complicit for a whole host of sins because we chose not to speak up against injustice. We chose not to step out against sin. Many times theologians use this word or this phrase of sin of omission. 
It's not the sin of commission. It's something you did that caused destruction, but it was something you should have done and you chose, whether out of fear or whether out of, uh, of uncertainty, you remained seated and you did not respond out of faith to confront injustice. I mean, think about it. It's not just your sins that are the problem. It's our sins, right? Our failures. And this is why we even, on a regular basis, each week we confess our sins together. There's something there about a community as we realize that, that we have an important role in impacting one another, that we're connected to one another. We're not guilty alone and we cannot walk in our faith alone. So he confesses both individually, personally, and communally. And you can hear his words. He says, God, remember what you told Moses. Remember when you said that if, yeah, we abandon you, you will scatter us throughout the lands? That happened. But also remember when, when, when you said that if we just return to you, you'll bring us back to your city. You will return to us and you will be our God. That's what we want. We're repenting. Bring us back. Be our God once more. And he does this for four months. Four months. Nehemiah prays. As many months, actually, as we've been reading through Open Here, which I think is an interesting connection, ever since the beginning of January. And in our scripture... Chapter 1 jumps right into chapter 2. It's like, he prays, he fasts, and boom, he's in front of the king. This is awesome. This is what, this is what life is like. No, not really. Uh, <laughs> in chapter 2, there's a four-month gap. Sometimes, many times, it can be even longer in our lives, right? And it's not until the month of March, the month of Nisan here, that anything happens. Four months, he prays. Man, I am such an impatient person. I even asked my community group this past Thursday. I said, can you guys just pray for me? I am just an impatient person. I've always been, ever since I was a kid, you know. I'd always come in and my mom would just say, you need to be patient. You need to be patient. Like, oh, why do I need to pay, be patient when I can have it now, you know. Um, but I, I still wrestle through that. We don't, we don't do anything, really, for four months, let alone pray with such consistent fervency over one thing. We act. We do, right? I'm a man who loves to do things, to have checklists. You ask my wife. Like, I'll, I'll do something. I'll make a checklist just so that I can check it off, even though it's already been done, you know? I judge the value of my day through productivity, that I've gotten things done. And prayer, it isn't productive. Or at least, we could say, it doesn't feel productive, does it? At times, we just want to shout at Nehemiah, what are you doing? The walls are broken. God's people need you, and you're praying for four months? Get a move on, buddy. Come on. Act. There's injustice out there. Go get it, you know? But if we're not praying, if we aren't praying, what good will our work be? What good are all those tears if God isn't in it, right? Are we praying? What's that one thing you were thinking about or you wrote down? What's that one thing? Will you pray about it? Will you actually intentionally set about time in your day to pray? Will you pray for it? For me, one of the projects um, on my plate as your pastor uh, has been our new space, right, at 1708 Baltimore um, that, that we're going to be moving to soon. And You know, if I meet with you one-on-one -on -one or I meet with a family my natural reaction to say, well, let's pray about this. Let's, let's get together. Okay, let's, let's talk about what's going on in your life. Let's pray and bless, and bless God's good name for the joys that are going on in your life. Let's pray and ask for God's intervention in moments of pain and brokenness. 
But for whatever reason, with this building, <laughs> you know, uh, I just jumped to acting. I don't nearly jump to prayer. Something happens and I go, okay, who do I need to email? How is this going to work now? Strategize, navigate, contemplate, you know. Um, but so often, I forget prayer in the mix. You know, we all have those different areas in our life. It's not like we forget to pray everywhere. It's those different parts in our lives, right, that we just assume that we can take control of, that we've got a good handle on. But God, he's the one who restores walls and renews buildings. He's the one who rebuilds lives and hearts and systems and nations and all that's broken. Without prayer, any attempt to fix it, well, once again, it'll be superficial at best or self-centered at worst. You see, brokenness, it compels us to pray. So will we? Will we pray? Yet, it's even easy to stop right here. Um, you know, we've shed a tear or two. We've said some prayers. Now let's get back to me. Uh, what do I need to do? Um, as if broken, brokenness is merely just this interruption in our lives rather than a disease that's spreading throughout every facet of our world. Well, Nehemiah, he's also compelled to work. So thirdly, we don't just weep and we don't just pray. We, act, we do do something. Um, a common statement around Christ's community as we understand the greater depths of the gospel is that the gospel of Jesus Christ is opposed to earning. We can't earn God's love because he gives it freely regardless of our just wretched selves at times. But it isn't opposed to effort. The Holy Spirit empowers us and is working in and through us, as Ephesians chapter 2 says, to walk in the good works that he's laid out before us. There is initiative there, empowered by the Spirit, yes. But still we do something. And man, is Nehemiah courageous or what? I mean, chapter 1 ends... Now I was cupbearer to the king. Sure, Nehemiah was a slave. He, he, he was a very cushy slave living in the palace. That was one of those ideal places to be. And he was in high, or close proximity to the richest, most powerful man who ever lived. Not unlike many of us, Nehemiah lived in great comfort. He had a great and a good life, even as a slave. But he doesn't take his vocation lightly. As a Jewish man... A Jewish slave with access to the king, not unlike Esther, as some of our women have been reading through in the women's Bible study, or Daniel at another time in scripture. Nehemiah, he serves the king, but ultimately he serves a higher king. There's this interesting dynamic that's going on throughout the book of Nehemiah. And he's willing to give up everything, even his life, to serve his ultimate king. You see, Artaxerxes, he'd already forbidden at a different time for Jerusalem's walls to be rebuilt. So for him to come and ask that you know, he could have these walls be rebuilt in chapter 2, which we will see, was very courageous. And he's about to ask this favor of his master. And a favor which, if all goes well, will actually force him out of comfort. It's going to force him out of the palace, out of luxury, towards an impossible mission. So look at chapter 2, verse 1 with me, if you have your Bibles there. He says, I took up the wine... And gave it to the king. There's something to learn there, folks. <laughs> now, I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, why is your face sad? Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, let the king live, live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins? And its gates have been destroyed by fire. Then the king said, what are you requesting? 
And look at how Nehemiah responds. So I prayed to the God of heaven. He hasn't graduated from prayer, even though he spent this intense time for four months. Even in this moment, he prays quickly to his God, and in the same breath, verse 5, he says to the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And he even asks Artaxerxes to send letters of authority sanctioning this project. He gets even unlimited access to the forests of the king. And on top of that, he asks, will you pay for this whole voyage? Hey, and then, and then in our chapter, chapter 2, it says he asks for a specific time, which we find out is actually 16 years. <laughs> can you imagine just asking your work, hey, can I take off some time? Like 16 years. I got this project over in, you know, India that I'm going to go do. Oh, yeah, go for it. Well, I mean, well, I mean who, who imagines this, right? And the king, verse 8, says, granted me what I asked. But he has a good perspective here. For God... For the good hand of my God was upon me. Now, I think to myself, and I say, wouldn't it be awesome to be Nehemiah? I mean, get a book of the Bible named after you. That'd be pretty awesome. It'd be kind of scary. It's like, what is it going to reveal yeah. <laughs> uh, about Gabriel? Um, I mean, he, 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 he's got so much going on, and so much of his story is based simply on the fact that he's in the right place at the right time. He's a cupbearer to the king. God puts this thing on his heart, and God makes it succeed. It's not a whole lot about what Nehemiah has made happen, but it's what God is doing in and through him, right? I mean, we need to understand that we're not all going to be like Nehemiah, and that can be kind of a bummer for some of us. Um, we're not going to have the same amount of fame. We may not even have as much visible success, and that, I think, might be one of the hardest parts. It may not feel like we're getting anywhere. But we still need to wrestle with where God has placed us. What's your vocation? Who are your kids? What resources has God given you? What are your talents? He's put you in the right place at the right time for what? What is that one thing? Where do your passions and your prayers and your placement all align in this world to be a dynamic impact? If you're a stay-at-home mom, you know, and you say, I'm passionate about kids. Maybe some stay-at-home moms aren't passionate about kids, but they're there with kids. Then there is where God, this is where God has put you. He's placed you to love those kids, to pour into them, and why not find more kids to pour into? This is a great avenue as well. I mean, what about supporting a child through Compassion International? As you compare for a child that's across the pond. What about connecting with a temporary foster care as you help care for children who are going through unstable home environments? What about serving in the children's ministry in your local church? Plug. Now, <clears throat> if you're, what, about, what, if, what about if you're a business person, a man or a woman? And how, how can you use your tools and your education to better those around you? Not just in your work to move up the social ladder or the, 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 uh, ed, um, the employment ladder, but also, how can you use those skills with either in under-resourced communities or surrounding within your neighborhood? to help being a, an avenue of, of, of outreach and impact for the gospel and for restoration of our broken world. If you're retired, and now you've got all this time on your hands, what are you going to do? I mean, I know there are some of you who spend time reading with children and helping their education. You listen to children as they read to you 30, for 30 to 45 minutes um, as they stumble through the words and wrestle through that because there's great studies that show 
If a child just has someone to read to on a regular basis, it helps their reading go through the roof. And so you're helping prepare a child that has a disadvantaged home uh, situation. What about connecting with homeless ministries? Or what about if you're an older man or an older woman mentoring an older or a younger man or a younger woman? And then finally, if you're a student, how do you see what you're learning as key? Yeah, preparation for where God has you. But also, it's not just about preparation. He's got you there now. To be an impact of that educational institution, to impact your colleagues or your fellow classmates or your siblings. Where does God have you now? What are you going to do about it? Brokenness, it compels us to move. But thank God we're not in this alone, right? God's clearly orchestrating every event in Nehemiah's life. This isn't by chance. We're meant to see this. This isn't some surprise to God. And so don't think he's not also orchestrating in your life the various situations and where he has you. Nehemiah, he's compelled to trust because the brokenness is so great. I mean, the problem is too big. The walls are too big. Our sin is too big. The real problems of the rest of our world are too large to do it on our own. But God is still bigger than all of those. He's the one who rebuilds walls, redeems relationships, and heals heartache. He delights to use us even though he doesn't need to use us. But he's doing it to form us into a kind of people who are becoming more like him. And because he finds great joy when his creation lives as he's designed us to live, as agents to encourage flourishing in the rest of his good world that's been broken. So we trust. Well, as chapter 2 continues, if you continue to read Nehemiah, he ends up in Jerusalem finally. It's about a two-hour, or two, not a two-hour journey, <laughs> but a two-year journey. That, that puts some perspective on things. And he ends up in Jerusalem, and he takes this tour around the city at night, you know. Um, that must have been a very comforting tour. And he confronts the brutal facts. If you look at verse 17, you see, he says this, you see the trouble we are in. How Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. You see, he's not overly optimistic about the problem. See, God's people, are, we're never called to be overly optimistic. That's not who we're called to be because we have an understanding of how deep our world's problems go because of the ravages of sin. We understand that when we have a full picture of what God is doing and the story arc of our, of our world. But he does trust. Look at verse 20. The God of heaven will make us prosper, and we his servants will arise and build. Nehemiah's work, it isn't his work. It's bigger than that. Your work is bigger than that. But he sees his work as God's work, and he sees himself as God's servant. You see, God, he cares about these things, the brokenness that we encounter throughout most of our lives, way more than any of us do. And so we trust in him. So we have to ask the question, as we have of these other three. Now for this fourth, who are you relying on building up the walls in your own life? In our world. I mean, next week we're going to see that this is not going to be easy from ne for Nehemiah. I mean, he's got like the worst remake or the remodel, you know on HGTVs I've probably ever seen. And in fact, the mission Nehemiah has accepted is nearly impossible with the crew he's got. And the things God calls us to, we have to understand are never easy. If you want something that's easy, you can't be with Jesus. 
If you want something that's really easy, you got to get out of the church. <laughs> if you want something that's super easy, then the work of redemption isn't for you. It's not easy, folks. But it is so good, isn't it? I mean, it is, it is, it is so fulfilling to be involved in what God has called us to be involved in. And so often we get discouraged because we do get overwhelmed. We look around and we, we get this impassioned spirit for whatever reason, whatever brokenness we've come across. And then we start looking at the complexities. And then we start looking at the complexities of the complexities. And we get overwhelmed. And then we get paralyzed. But we have to ask, where do you start? How about that one thing you wrote down, you were thinking about, that you're going to be weeping over, that you're going to be praying through, that you're going to be working on, whatever it is, focus on it. And you can't focus, remember, like we said, on everything. And remember, here's a key thing, and some of us have greater problems with this than others. Um, remember, you're not the savior of the world. You know, it's, it's okay to look at the many problems and realize that you can't impact all of them. But choosing one and seeing how we are the body of Christ now as the church, and he's using all of us to impact the various aspects of injustice and death and pain in our world. So we have to ask, what's that next tangible step in that one thing? What's that accessible thing you can do just to move a little bit further, to spread a little more light of Jesus in our dark world? What would it look like for you to actually take that one thing seriously? And then I want you to imagine what it would look like for Christ's community to do that. Once again, we're not individuals. We're a community of faith centered on Jesus, the one who has brought us together. And the local church, as God has designed it, is really meant to be the hope of the world. <laughs> it's a pretty audacious statement. But it's pretty magnificent when you think about the synergy of all of God's people working together to really be dynamic in their impact where God has placed them. Our job description is to be on mission with God. And so God save us from being merely a social club or something that's a really inspiring gathering and then we don't go do anything, right? Let us be a movement so clothed with the good news of Jesus, so filled with his power and with his love that we're compelled, so compelled that we can't sit on our hands because they're getting jittery and get excited. I mean, look at our world. Weep, pray, work, and trust. I didn't have a good acronym, so I don't have one for you. As I was thinking about before. But how can, we, how can we trust when things... I mean, this is one of the biggest elements. When we look and we experience the brokenness as deep as we do, and we look at, and we just think, how can we trust in the sight of such awful realities? When we do have bombings in Boston that are just merely targeted to destroy innocent people and to destroy and cause havoc and terror. Or when we hear the story in Waco this fertilizer plant that explodes and houses are collapsed and people are, you know, are no longer able to stay in their homes, their memories are lost. The shootings in Newton. How do we trust in the midst of all of these things? And then even in the everyday, like our fractured relationships, our family, our friends who are wrestling through cancer. We trust because we believe in a God who hates the brokenness even more than we do. Think about how angry you get. Think about how sad you get in the midst of all of that. Now imagine a God who knows it all. He knows everything that's going on, more than just what makes it on the news. 
but the, the quiet abuse that happens behind closed doors in a family. The struggling finances of a family that's always trying to keep up image and forever fragmenting and relationships destroying one another behind closed doors. You see, he watches the people he loves, that's us, his creation, systematically destroy one another and the good world he made through unceasing rebellion against him. And his heart breaks. And we trust because we believe in a God who doesn't just sit there and watch. But our God entered the world. There's no other system of beliefs that holds to this truth. That God is separate from his creation, mighty and powerful and over his creation, and chose to submit himself to actually become or come into creation and then die for creation. And then be raised and show that he has power even over death. No other system of beliefs can say that. None. And so we ask, did you hear that 450 years later, Jesus sits and looks on the city of Jerusalem and weeps over the people of his city because they continue to reject God? Did you hear Jesus when he prayed and he taught his disciples to pray to God, your kingdom come, because only his kingdom will bring the solution? Did you hear Jesus accomplished his great work on the cross on our behalf. The ultimate show of love, the promise written in blood that our world will not always be like this, but one day it will be made right. And did you hear that he conquered the grave? The walls will be rebuilt. Sin has met its match. Death will not win, and brokenness will one day be no more. Yeah, brokenness, it compels us, but our ultimate motivation, it comes from looking to the compelling gospel. It's here that the ultimate what and the how and the why of our engagement into brokenness takes shape. It's understood. We don't go out in arrogance because Jesus didn't go out in arrogance. We go out with a firm belief in who God is and who Christ is, but not with arrogance. We go out with service as Jesus washes the feet, the feet of his disciples, not setting up a hierarchy so that he can lord his leadership over, but rather building a brotherhood. It's this gospel of engagement into our brokenness by the God-man, Jesus Christ, that we remember in a tangible way each week at the Lord's table, what God has done. You see, in this act, we see broken bread, and we engage together as a community. We remember the one who took our brokenness upon himself so that humanity may be redeemed, and one day God's good world would be restored from surrounding brokenness and fragmentation. In common broken bread, we remember Jesus' broken body. In common poured juice, we remember his shed blood for us. For the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's take a moment of silence together to remember and to think of on the one thing that God has laid on your heart in terms of interaction, of weeping, of praying, and then following Christ into that brokenness.